You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. The stars have aligned, so today we are speaking with Ryan Bennett, Director of the Astronomy Program at the University of North Texas. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks. It's nice to meet you. It's great to be here. It is awesome to have you here because I love all things night sky and you're the guy to talk to. You are the director of the UNT Sky Theater, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's correct. Can you tell us what the UNT Sky Theater is and why people should know where it is and what it is? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So Sky Theater is a dome theater planetarium. Uh, We like to call it Sky Theater because it's got a lot more power to it, I think, than maybe a traditional planetarium or what people think of as planetariums where you only look at stars and constellations. I mean, it's essentially a 360-degree video. Anything that you can imagine, we can actually put up in Sky Theater. In fact, I've actually even thought about collaborating with some of the art departments here and music departments and things like that because there really is a lot of power that it has. Traditionally, you know, it is the astronomy program, though, so we do focus primarily on astronomy. The whole system itself works off of uh, kind of the brains. It's a Digistar 6 system, which is a proprietary system that's one of the most renowned uh, systems that you can get for a planetarium. It's got two different projectors. One actually projects the back of the planetarium, one projects the front. Those are brand new. We just installed those a couple of months ago. We've actually able to get nice high definition out of them now. In some weird way, I guess it was lucky that the planetarium flooded, uh, so it allowed it allowed for this to upgrade. It. We flooded over the big ice storm that we had in February, I guess, last year. But that's new. Also, our brains, our Digistar system, the Digistar 6 system is also fairly brand new. It hasn't been used too much. We got it in January of 2020, and then, of course, you know, March 2020 came, and we weren't doing very much with it at that point in time. So we've got it all fired back up and everything's good now. There's about 101 seats out there. It's kind of a theater that you would imagine. The best seats, if you're ever curious and you're joining us, are usually a little bit further behind the projector. Again, you kind of get to sit in the middle of the show rather than the outside of the show, which kind of makes you feel like you're involved. And you've got roller coaster rides, which are kind of fun sometimes. It actually does make you feel immersed in the video. You're kind of a part of it. It's essentially VR before there was VR, and now they we can do all of these things with VR video these days. We can actually put all of that in the dome, too, so there's a lot of people that actually have skills to develop things for this now. So it's not just planetarium astronomy stuff anymore, but overall, it's primarily what we use it for. That's what I want to engage students and also public outreach in. So yeah, I hope that gives, that gives you a good description. It does. It's gotten me ready to go. I'm looking forward to it. It sounds pretty state-of-the-art. Absolutely. Teaching science to the average person is clearly a worthy goal. I mean, not only kids, but adults, too. I know some people can think it's a pretty difficult subject, although a lot of people are interested in the stars and astronomy and all there is for us to see. So how do you suggest people go about doing that? 
Uh, well, I mean, there's lots of ways to go about doing that. As director of our astronomy program here, I would say come to our planetarium, come to our star parties that we have here on campus and, and let us teach you. Obviously, that's one of the ways that I would like to promote. We do have uh, public outreach that we do here on Saturdays, 2 o'clock and 6.30. 2 o'clock show is typically a show that we change every month. And it'll be like a base show where we talk about either the history of astronomy or sometimes we don't always cover astronomy. We've actually got some other shows that deal with like natural selection and things like that. But all of our shows are always followed by traditional planetarium star talks where we'll bring up the sky that evening, show you where you can find different constellations that'll be out that particular evening, even show you how the sky will change a little bit as evenings progress as well. Really, if we can take it a step further, sometimes we'll even give you a little bit more of a tour of the solar system because we can actually fly throughout the universe the way that the planetarium is programmed now in this new proprietary software. We also have star parties. They're a lot of fun. Those are on the first and third Saturdays of the month, and those are actually out at the RUAC, the RAFIS Urban Astronomy Center. If weather permits, the planetarium doesn't matter about weather, but obviously our star parties in our observatory does. If weather permits, we go out there and we can take a look at all of the stars live. We can actually do the same thing we do in the planetarium but with the real stars, which is a lot, in my opinion, actually funner. But power of the planetarium is also incredibly useful too. But, you know, there's other stuff out there that you can use to learn about astronomy on your own. There are some free Corsica courses I know that are out there. And there's also this program called Stellarium, which is free software that you can download for free. It's actually based out of France, but it's a planetarium-based software where you can simulate the night sky for any given night, you get a little bit of an idea of what's going to be out. There's actually even some planetariums out there that operate on this software. So it kind of gives you the power of a planetarium, put in the palm of your hand for free. I think there's lots of ways to learn about it. We'd love to have everybody here and kind of show them around ourselves. We've got a really, really uh, good staff. I think I've got probably one of the best staffs that I've had since I've worked here. Lots of people that are very motivated about astronomy, very motivated about their job. And, and they're also really just good team players and, and really work well together. Essentially, they're all amateur astronomers. Wow. They're lucky to be able to work with you where they are. I think that's great. How do you spell that program that you mentioned? Stellarium, you say? Stellarium? Uh, oh, you're going to spell something on the fly? Uh-oh. It's S-T-E-L-L-A-R-I-U-M. Great. That's, it sounds very interesting. Now, when we go out for the star parties, I know we're in pretty much a metropolitan area. It's not like we're out in West Texas in the dark skies and whatever. Does the light pollution affect what we see very much, or do the telescopes go beyond that? How does that work? That's a great question. It's called the Rafus Urban Astronomy Center for a reason. It's a little bit more on the urban side of things. We do actually have some light pollution on our eastern skies as you're looking back towards Denton, for sure. Not a ton we can do about that. There are things that are called light pollution filters that we can't actually put on the telescopes that help a little bit. But those are predominantly made for astrophotography, and they're helped to make it so you don't overexpose stuff whenever you have light pollution. Um, so there's not too much we can do to affect it, but we are kind of a little bit on the outskirts of the city. Uh, interestingly enough, the city's moving towards us. In fact, I think they're going to be moving 288 to pass almost directly by the observatory. So oh, no. we're in some talks right now with TxDOT to see if we can maybe move the observatory potentially or maybe convince them to maybe go around us or something like that. <laughs> but Good luck. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, we definitely, light pollution does affect our skies some. We're far enough away from campus in Denton that our central and, and western skies look really, really, really well. It does affect our view some, though. 
how far do people have to go that live in this area to truly get away from the DFW light pollution? Do you have to go very far? Yes. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> Honestly, I was looking, I've been looking at light pollution a little bit more and more later in the area because of this Loop 288 expansion, because we're just trying to figure out the best way to build our argument for this. And one of the things that I actually noticed, so whenever I go to my dad's house, he lives in Decatur. And usually whenever I go out to Decatur, the stars just look brilliant. I was very surprised to see that as far as like dark sky rating goes, dark Decatur is actually really close to having the same dark sky rating as say where our observatory is. Really? Yeah. And so to me, I think I even see the stars better out there. So I'm just not sure if that rating's correct nonetheless, but you really do have to get out in the country. You, you can't be too far in the city. In my opinion, you know, if you kind of drove down 380 enough, maybe right before you got to Decatur or something like that, that's probably in this area where you're probably going to get the least amount of light pollution, maybe heading towards Sanger or something like that before you get to Windstar, obviously. I think overall, it, it does allow us to appreciate all the features. There's there's a lot of things that we can do as far with astrophotography when we do that to kind of drown out light pollution and try to filter it out as best as we can. Overall, you know, whenever you're looking at a telescope with just your eye, though, I mean, your eye is constantly processing the image. So there's there's only so much that you can see without taking a picture most of the time. So it really is whenever you do take a picture that you're going to be able to make out detail. And the reason for that is because your eye is always constantly processing information, right? If you put a camera on the end of it, it can sit there and collect light for a certain amount of time over an exposure and really present more detail than your eye would process at one time. So usually through that method, you're able to really draw out stuff. Like for instance, if you're able to go look at even a galaxy right now, like our closest galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, whenever you take a look at that, that through one of our best telescopes, you usually only see the central core of that galaxy. You don't see the spiral arms that are wrapped around it very much. And it really doesn't matter how powerful the telescope you're using if you do that. It's just because your eye is going to process that brighter light really, really quickly. And it's not getting enough of the, that dimmer light that kind of makes up these spiral arms. But amazingly enough, even if you just do like a one second exposure or something like that on a camera, it'll actually start to bring out those arms pretty quickly. And this is one thing that I'm excited about with what we're going to be doing with observatory soon. We're going to be actually looking at doing more astrophotography and bringing that both to our labs for our classes, but also through public outreach and potentially allowing public to come in and, and take some pictures that they can take home with them. Okay, you just got me in. I, I went all the way down to Big Bend to do night sky photography. And I, well, first of all, I was blown away because I moved from the East Coast. I've never seen the stars like that. And the Milky Way from one horizon to the other horizon at like 9.30 at night, it was amazing. But yeah, I had to do a lot of the, you know, as you say, you put your camera on, you let it wait for a long time and, and you get pictures, but oh, we might have that in our area. I am so excited. That's amazing. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. We've still got, that's, that's one of these projects that I'm talking about that's kind of ongoing yes. that we're trying to finish. But uh, the goal is within the next year to really have something that we can do with this, both maybe through the telescopes and also even, you know, without using telescopes and just using tripods and, and DSLR cameras. Oh, wow. I am very excited about that. So you mentioned kind of roughly, you talked about this. We have the Star Theater, which is a planetarium. And then you mentioned Rafi's Urban Astronomy Center, which is with the telescopes, right? Do you have another one? Yes, we also do have the Monroe Robotic Observatory as well. It's pretty close to Oklahoma. It's pretty close to the Texas-Oklahoma border. It's up kind of a little bit past Gainesville over by Moss Lake. 
Uh, so we use sometimes we call it the Moss Lake Observatory or the MLAB. But right now, it's currently kind of out of commission. Over COVID, it was closed, so it hasn't been used a lot. Our former observatory manager here actually had a dark sky observatory near the McDonald, but he's since retired, and so has that. So I'm going to be reviving the Monroe. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I'd imagine in a couple of years, we should have that going again. And I envision using that probably a little bit more on the research end. So we have used the Monroe in the past to do some verification of exoplanet data. So planets, of course, that orbit other stars. Typically, Kepler is one of the missions that we have going on that searches for exoplanets. And it's actually kind of a satellite that's out in space that that does these sort of measurements. And a lot of the times they need confirmations of these measurements. And so Earth-based telescopes and small telescope observatories are ideal for these sort of things. So probably going to set that back up. It's a pretty interesting area of astronomy that a lot of students are interested in researching as well. So I'm hoping we can hire some faculty on that's actually interested in doing this as well to kind of be supportive of me and I can get this facility going. Of course, I can also help the students with it as well, but there's a lot to do to get that that guy back open again. But it is, uh, it's definitely a great observatory. We could also use it some for astrophotography as well. You know, the light pollution out there with it being where it's located in a little bit more of an ideal location. Although Windstar gets a little bit close on, got a little bit close to one of the sides. It's been around for a little while, uh, but it's a really ideal location for doing astrophotography as well. So we're hoping to be able to do some more astrophotography out there. And that might be even a fun little thing that we can do where if, you know, we get clouded out at our observatory, right? Maybe if it's not cloudy there, it might be, it's not that far away, but it might allow us to actually do some something there whenever we have to close for, for public things here. Well, you certainly get my vote on all of these things. They're pretty exciting coming up, particularly the astrophotography. I think that's amazing. And you have a lot open to the public, which is really something. There are a lot of exciting programs. And I noticed on your website that you have some links to some interesting looking shows, Bad Astronomy, Are We Alone, Back the Moon for Good. How do you go about selecting these shows? Both, I think, guess you have streaming and you show them at the theater. Is that right? Streaming's kind of died down a little bit since COVID's actually uh, let up on us a little bit. So we haven't done as much streaming lately, but we're still available for it. We just don't get very many requests for it. The way that we kind of go about selecting the shows in a lot of senses are what's what's kind of out there being developed by the community that's being offered in terms of grants. A lot of these shows actually are come to us via grants so that we can actually offer them for free, essentially, to the public. But then we also do have some shows that, you know, we do license out as well. So, for instance, Bad Astronomy is one of those shows that's actually licensed out. Interestingly enough, we also do some of our own production. Are We Alone is actually a show that we produced in-house. It was actually made, I did some of the animation for it. Ron did some of the video shooting for it long, long ago. In fact, that's actually, we made that when I was a student here. Oh, I want to see that one. Yeah, and so so that was a pretty interesting one. It actually features our observatory in it a lot, too. That's cool. Um, Back to the Moon for Goods, narrated by Tim Allen. That's also another one that actually got produced. I think that got produced due to the Google Lunar X Prize. Um, and so that was kind of a little bit of an informational type thing on that, too. A lot of the times whenever uh, scientists do research grants, they also have an outreach component to that grant that they have for Phil. And through that, a lot of the times they'll produce planetarium shows. One of my goals as director now is to kind of be to kind of get us back into the production phase. It's been a little bit of time since we've done it. It takes a long time to produce a planetarium show, but I'd like to get us a few new ones going as well. And also revive some of the old ones for the new system, really. 
I would love that. You're going to have to start working longer hours and more days in the week because you've got a lot of terrific things going on. We I'm do. sure you're working plenty. <laughs> well, in astronomy, we don't sleep much as it is, but now I'm very busy in the day now as well. <laughs> well, that's what I noticed with night photography is that when you're taking pictures of the skies, you know, especially when it's not dark, dark, dark skies like out in Big Bend, sometimes in the in depending on what time of year it is, you have to stay up pretty late or way until early in the morning to get a picture of the Milky Way. Right. And uh, yeah, it's it's not too conducive for sleeping. So, you know, it's a tough crew. I tell you, you've got to be ready to stay up. So with my interest in astrophotography and with people, our listeners who are interested, I'm sure, in learning more about astronomy, do we need telescopes of our own to learn these things? Do we need, if we do have a telescope, do we need a very expensive one to make it worthwhile? Uh, I mean, it kind of depends on how deep you really want to get into this, right? If you want to do astrophotography and you want to do good astrophotography, you need to have really good tracking equipment. You don't necessarily need a, a really great telescope, but you need a really good mount and you need to be able to know how to calibrate that mount because you've got to align it to essentially the celestial sphere or really to the celestial pole, which is pretty close to the North Star Polaris, right? And so once you do that, it allows it to track. So as the earth rotates, it can kind of counteract that. And then that's what allows you to take a good picture. Otherwise, you know, if you do like even a minute exposure or something like that, the earth's moved a little bit. And that movement's pretty significant whenever you're magnifying. So you end up with a blurry image every time. Absolutely. That's one of the main things you need for good astrophotography is good tracking equipment. Obviously, a good DSLR camera is pretty good. We're using CMOS cameras for telescopes. But really, you know, you can do really good astrophotography without having a telescope at all and just a good lens and a good DSLR camera. You can always do a time exposure of certain areas. I, I got some good pictures of the comet that we had not too long ago, just learning astrophotography some myself. And just from doing exposures, you couldn't see it with your naked eye, but where I was at anyway, there were places you could go, but you were able to bring it out pretty nice with a DSLR camera. But yeah, if you're going to get a telescope, what I usually suggest is actually what they call is a Dobsonian telescope. We've got a few of those actually out uh, that we do star parties with as well. We've got 10-inch ones. The general rule with the telescope is the wider that it is, the better, right? So uh, your goal is not to magnify. Your goal is to collect light and then magnify. If you run across a telescope that's saying, you know, this has got great magnification, then you probably are looking at the wrong telescope because magnification is really not uh, an important property. In fact, most telescopes can tell you, you know, they can magnify 500 times, but if you don't have a very wide opening, you don't get very good angular resolution. So you don't really see whatever you're magnifying. So that doesn't do you very well. That said, though, you know, overall, whenever I recommend the Dobsonian, I certainly wouldn't recommend that for astrophotography. Because Dobsonians are nice because the, the way that they're mounted, they allow you to move it with altitude and asthma. So just kind of across, you know, directionally, east to west, north to south, things like that. And then they kind of, will go, you can change the altitude by moving it up and down. Those guys are uh, really easy to use. They're just not gaudy telescopes. And usually they're on the cheaper side. So they're a good thing to start off with. But, you know, if you really get into astrophotography pretty good, then you're eventually going to probably be looking at maybe getting a, a Smith-Cassegrain-type telescope or something like that, which is going to give you the, the power of a big Dobsonian, but in a much smaller telescope that's easier to manage and transport. So let's say I just got my telescope. 
and I'm interested in learning about constellations and what's going to happen, astronomy in general. What should my first steps be? I think you always want to start simple, right? Start with just learning the night sky in general, kind of figuring out where things are. You know, constellations are a lot of fun. They've got a lot of stories and things like that that go with them. But for astronomical purposes, the only reason that they're important is they allow us to identify certain areas of the sky, right? So if, for instance, there's a, a comet or something like that, I can tell you, hey, look towards the constellation of Orion, you might be able to see the comet. As far as getting into it and really just kind of getting started, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can go, but really with amateur astronomy, I think it always ends up directing itself and lending itself towards astrophotography. So you'll literally see people, you know, first start off kind of buying real simple, usually Newtonian type telescopes or Dobsonian type telescopes that I mentioned. And that kind of gives you an idea if, you know, you really want to do it. And then after that, you know, I think the next step is, is you know, then that's if, if you really are into it, but you're not quite satisfied with the images that you're getting just looking through your eye, that's whenever you kind of start to unpack and maybe you can invest a little bit more and get into the go the astrophotography route and then start getting those more precise mounts that you can calibrate and T-point and really uh, uh, allow you to take incredible photographs of the night sky. I would warn everyone, though, if you've looked at Hubble photographs and things like that, you're just you're never going to get that. We're not competing with NASA, right? We right. can't do it. <laughs> right, exactly. Does the full moon have an effect on that, on my being able to see things. And I know photography wise it does, but if I'm trying to look at constellations, does the phase of the moon matter? Well, for constellations, you do usually want to stay away from a full moon. Constellations, generally speaking, though, you know, as long as you're probably about like, I don't know, 20 or 30 degrees off of where the moon's located, you're going to be able to see constellations fine. Where you're going to probably get hung up a little bit is whenever you're wanting to find deep sky objects. So full moon's definitely going to wash out deep sky objects that are within the region that it's, it's looking where you're looking at. And then, you know, if you're even doing astrophotography in that region, it's going to cloud it up a little bit. So you're going to need to use a good light pollution filter, but you can still kind of get around it some, but usually whenever you're doing any sort of deep sky observations, if you're looking for nebula galaxies even if you're just trying to do some images of stars and star clusters and stuff like that, you usually just want to wait for a night that the moon's not going to be out. That said, though, you know, if you're looking on the opposite sky or anything like that, general amateur astronomers are probably not going to take too much note of the difference between that. But overall, I think you really do want to try to go good to the sort of observations and these things like this. When is a new moon or so? But what if you want to astro do astrophotography of the moon? And the moon's really actually one of the most interesting things to look at, honestly. It's really close. You can yeah. see a whole lot of detail on it. If I'm interested in looking at something during a particular season or, say, this month or whatever, you mentioned the uh, Stellarium program. Mm -hmm. Is that my best bet or something like that to see what's what's interesting that's going on during the summer, or during the fall or this month, whatever? Uh, I think, you know, one of the things we try to do with our social media pretty often, uh, so we've got our uh, Sky Theater social media, and then we also have one for the RUAC as well, so the Rafus Urban Astronomy Center. We do like to put in links of, like, really what's going on every week with the night sky. I think predominantly we do that with the, the observatory one because it makes more sense with it. But we usually use, like, time and date for sky and telescope. Those are both good references. Timeanddate.com actually goes through and actually gives a summary 
every week of different astronomical events to look out for. So that's always really useful. You know, you can see if there's meteor showers that are going to be particularly interesting that particular week. Eclipses sometimes are in there. You know, you got to know what you're looking for in terms of eclipses because sometimes you might have only like a partial eclipse like that or maybe even a penumbral eclipse. Penumbral eclipse, most people are not going to really recognize that anything actually happened. A very light shadow will move across the moon, but sometimes the nudes will have something on as just like some sort of big deal, and then it becomes incredibly disappointing because it's not a really a true eclipse, uh, as most people think about it. You know, overall, those are really good references. I'd say timeanddate.com, Sky and Telescope, both do a pretty good job of updating what's going on in the sky um, and we do also add those on our social media. So if you follow us there, you can actually just get access to it there. You have so much knowledge and expertise. What's your background and how did you personally get interested in astronomy? Were you born looking up at the night sky? That's a really interesting question and a very long story. Try <laughs> Go to, ahead. I'll Go try, for it. I'll try to, I'll try to get it down. So you know, a long time ago, I mean, even as a kid, I was really interested in astronomy. I think most kids are, right? I think most adults are. We look at the sky and we're just like, wow, you know, we're kind of small and there's a lot of stuff out there. And it's just kind of overwhelming to think about. Interestingly enough, though, whenever I started my career path in college, I kind of decided that I probably wouldn't be able to find a job in astronomy if I were to graduate. So I didn't know if it was a lucrative investment because it's pretty tough to get a job in astronomy. Uh, overall, I mean, I think I've actually been lucky. Whenever I first got into it, I actually was studying, I was going to be a lawyer. And then it, eventually I decided, you know, I didn't want to work all of the time. So I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer because it seemed like lawyers worked all of the time. So I did kind of the traditional path, I think, that a lot of students did. And I took a lot of different turns, actually, initially in my education. I studied psychology for a little while. I decided that psychology, the way that I'd been studying it, was mostly really more like sociology. And I was really more interested in the individual. And so I went from there to actually neuroscience, and I actually studied neuroscience. In fact, while the entire time I was going to school, I actually was studying something that would be referred to, I guess, as synthetic cognition. So actually trying to understand how the brain works and then being able to synthesize that through computers. Interestingly enough, though, what I did in 2004 was I took this course. So I took the 1052 astronomy course. And the very first thing I did uh, with one of the labs was there is we went to a lab where we look at all of the different planets that happened to be out that evening. And I took a look at Saturn. And I mean, you look at Saturn through a telescope and it looks like what you'd expect it to look like, but you still just, there's something in your mind that just says, you know, it's just a dot in the sky. And then you look at it through a telescope and you see these brilliant rings. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Then I started kind of pounding down uh, Randy Peters and Ron Delio's door. They were the planetarium manager and the director of the program back then. Literally, I had to knock on their door for like about six months or so, but they finally hired me. And so the entire time, you know, while I was going to school here, you know, studying biophysics, I ended up working for this program. So I was a lab assistant. Uh, I was a console operator for the planetarium. I also ended up going to graduate school here. So I was a teaching assistant for uh, the planetarium and our astronomy program here. And then shortly after I graduated, as it turns out, I was actually doing my research in a fairly niche field. And there wasn't as many opportunities out there. And there happened to be an opportunity here to take over as a planetarium manager. So I just ended up kind of getting lucky and actually falling into what I had originally had thought 
would not be a good opportunity for me. Literally, just about a year or so, I think, after I graduated, the planetarium manager here was retiring. So it kind of fell into my lap. I wasn't really expecting to be able to get a job into astronomy long, long ago, whenever I set up all of these plans, right? And then and one just ended up falling in my lap with the same program that I pretty much had spent 10 to 12 years with as I was going through school part-time. Uh, so it ended up, it just ended up working out really well. I started off with a planetarium manager position here. And then recently in September, Ron and Preston both retired. So here I am as the director now. It's been a fun ride. And like I said, it's really, really fun. I'm very, very passionate about this program. I fell in love with it whenever I was a student here. Ron did a really, really good job of putting all this stuff together. And I think one of the things that he did that I really valued the most is he listened to all of his employees a lot. And so whenever, you know, we said, hey, this isn't going right, or maybe we need to do something here, he would kind of let us own it. And he would say, all right, well, what do you think we should do? How should we improve it? And so he'd give us an opportunity to grow ourselves. And one of the things that I saw a long time ago, whenever we were doing cloudy night labs out at the observatory, because we still had to have labs because we had limited space. And so I was like, we need to be doing something inside, kind of simulating what we would do outside instead of watching movies was, was what we were doing before. And, and so we, he allowed me to develop a program to do that. And so, you know, I kind of try to do the same thing with my employees and listen to them. And like I said, we've got pretty much amateur astronomers on staff and we kind of train them to be that way. We mostly just want to find people that are interested in astronomy, that aren't too nervous to talk in front of people, or we can kind of beat that out of them eventually. Usually we do too, but it's just a lot of fun. It's been an interesting path to get here. I'm very, very happy to achieve this. And now I'm happy to kind of make some improvement to the improvements of the program that I know that are there, but I kind of feel like I'm running faster than I should be. And I do need to take my time because we've got a long time to do it. I don't know. After listening to what you've got coming up, I'm going to be behind you, pushing you, you know, go, go, go. Cause it sounds like you've got some great things coming up. Mm -hmm. It really does. That's so exciting. And it's amazing the way things fell into place for you. It just sounds like fate. It has been, it's, it's been, it's been a gift for sure. Do you have a lot of the public showing up for different things? Are you getting a big response from the public? Because it sounds like what an amazing thing we have right here in our backyard. And I had to tell you, I honestly didn't realize all of the things that you have to offer. And it's definitely going to be a new venue for me to go to learn more about the night sky. Yeah, I don't think people know we're here as much as I'd like. Right now, I'm going to sit in a foundation type stage where we're reestablishing our foundation from COVID and actually you know, adding in a few things and just trying to make ourselves a little bit more accessible and improving our programs and getting the best product that we can out there as possible. But as soon as I feel like we get to that stage, I'm going to pretty much be making a strong marketing aspect of everything where we can actually maybe start to really advertise a lot more and get some more people out here as much as possible. Hopefully this even works for that a little bit as well. It should. Hey, listeners, come on. You got it right there in your backyard. As you say, Ryan, you know, everybody's interested in the night sky, from little kids to adults. Do you have some things coming up for the public in the astronomy department that the viewers should know about? Uh, there's a few things that I'd touch on. May 15th, we do have a lunar eclipse coming up. I'm planning on making a, a pretty big event out of that. We want to do something both out at the observatory and also something at the planetarium where maybe we'll even set up some telescopes in the parking lot of the environmental science building and have two separate events going on. Sometimes whenever we have these eclipse events, a lot of people show up and it actually ends up 
being a detriment to some of them because they'll park really, really far away. And then by the time they get up there, there's not as much for them to do. Um, so we're going to try to split it up and do something with that. Also in 2024, we do actually in April of 2024, we've actually got a solar eclipse that's going mm. to be at totality here in Denton. Wow. That's going to be a giant event. I've got a lot of coordination I want to do, but we're going to be trying to do something maybe even with Fouts Field for that. So maybe we can set some telescopes and some different events and have some fun things going on out in front of Fouts Field. And then within Fouts Field, we can put the eclipse actually on the big TV, but you could literally look up and just see it too, which is really what we want people to do. But just to kind of have a little event that we can sell some tickets to, maybe have some speakers and stuff like that come out and talk about it as well, including myself, maybe some, and my planetarium manager, Jim Bader. Another thing that I also should mention and also be grateful for as well as the Hudson Foundation has donated $50,000 to us to develop the John D. Hoosier Memorial Exhibit Space. So it's in memory of one of their former employees. And we're going to be hopefully doing kind of a reopening of the exhibit space at the end of this spring, if not at the beginning of the summer, we're going to have a nice video wall that we're going to be putting out there. We've got some new meteorites that we've gotten for our meteorite display. We're going to be opening up another display over there. And then in addition to that, our former director, Ron Delio, has donated an 8-inch refractor telescope for our other dome. So we've got two domes out at the Rafus Urban Astronomy Center, but, for, uh, but one of them hasn't had a telescope populated in it for some time. And now we're going to have actually probably one of the largest refracting telescopes in the southern United States. Oh my goodness. So we'll have that, and then we'll also have the six-inch. So these are refractors, right? The ones you're going to go visit in McDonald, right? Those are those are reflectors, and those are huge, right? But these are these eight-inch, this eight-inch refractor is going to be one of the largest refractors in this area as well. So those are some of the things we got going on, and we're probably going to do maybe a grand reopening of the observatory when we get that out there as well. I'm looking forward to all of that. This is really great. It's so good to have you here. And it's wonderful that people can get this word out. And we got a two-year lead on this solar eclipse, right? Exactly. So people can just get your calendars out and mark it right now because it sounds like there's some great things going on. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate you too. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Ryan Bennett. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 